You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. A betrayal of victims, a slap in the face for victims, a unilateral action on a sensitive issue the Irish government strongly advised against. That's just some of the reaction to the news the British government will bring in an amnesty for crimes committed during the Troubles. Our Northern editor Vincent Kearney has the story which came out uh, in London overnight. Vincent, uh, talk to us about what's being planned and we've heard already uh, some of the reaction from the SDLP, Sinn Féin, the Irish government uh, in my introduction there, uh, but also give us the context for this decision from London. Well, in terms of context, dealing with the legacy of the past is is the most controversial and sensitive and unresolved political issue in Northern Ireland. Politicians simply haven't been able to reach agreement. Although back in 2014, they did sign the Stormont House Agreement that brought together all the main political parties in Northern Ireland along with the British and Irish governments. And it set out a pathway to deal with the legacy of the past, although it still hasn't been implemented. Now, it included an independent historical investigations unit, which would examine all unsolved troubles related deaths and give victims what they wanted because many victims, while they don't want prosecutions they do want to know the truth about what happened, but others do want prosecutions. Now the idea on you of an amnesty isn't new in itself eight years ago I interviewed the then Attorney General John Larkin QC and he said it was time in his view to draw a line under the past, to draw a line in the sand because he said with each passing year the prospect of prosecutions and convictions reduced. Now that was met with universal anger across the political spectrum but that sounds very like the kind of idea the British government is now proposing. She said reported overnight after media briefings uh, the Daily Telegraph and the Times newspapers reporting this move is to be announced in the Queen's speech next week uh, claimed this legislation would introduce a ban on any prosecutions of former British soldiers for any alleged crimes, uh, killings before the Good Friday Agreement was signed in 1998 but not only that um, the this would apply across the board, uh, include former members of the IRA and loyalist paramilitary groups. That only is because a number of years ago, a defence select committee of the House of Commons looked at this issue in detail. That defence committee recommended that there should not be prosecutions of, of soldiers, but it also said that legal advice it had received made it very clear that you, the government could not act unilaterally and only protect soldiers, that this would have to be uh, ruled out across mm-hmm. the board for all killings and the troubles. Now, the Irish government has known that this has been about in terms of an idea. It has been um, briefed on this as a possible idea on, on a number of occasions. But on each occasion, the Irish government has made it very clear as opposed to it. It remains fully committed to the Stormont House Agreement. It says anything else would, would betray victims, would let victims down and would be insensitive. Um, and it appears that the government had no advance notice yesterday that this was going to be leaked to the media in terms of possibly an imminent announcement on this very sensitive issue coming as early as next week. Which is curious, isn't it, Vincent? Because, of course, there was the meeting yesterday between Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney and Northern Secretary Brandon Lewis. A breach of the Stormont House Agreement unilaterally by one side. The key question is, was it discussed at that meeting? My understanding is on you that a range of issues were discussed at that meeting, including uh, legacy issues. Um, as I said, the government was aware that the British government and the authorities had been thinking about a number of options for, for dealing with legacy. So they weren't entirely blindsided that they did have some kind of, of knowledge that this might be being discussed. But as I say, my understanding is it was discussed between Simon Coveney and Brandon Lewis, um, but the Minister for Foreign Affairs again made the Irish government's position very clear, which it is it remains 
fully committed to the Stormont Heritage Agreement and advised the UK authorities against any such move because, as you say, it said it was very insensitive. Brandon Lewis got on the plane after the meeting, went to London. Simon Coveney went to, to Brussels. My understanding is that the Irish government uh, then uh, found out through media reports uh, that this has been leaked and was being talked about, uh, being introduced, as I say, as early as next week. Now, again, my understanding is that the UK authorities at political and official level were immediately left in, in no uh, doubt about the level of anger, dismay and concern um, coming from Dublin. As uh, as we heard earlier, political leaders here as well, Michelle O'Neill, the Deputy First Minister, Colin Eastwood, the SDLP leader, uh, were very quick to issue statements because this is a highly sensitive issue. They've Politicians here have been concerned, very worried that the British government might try some move like this uh, for a number of years now because of the lack of implementation of that Stormont House Agreement. Now, we've been here before. There have been reports you know, for the past couple of years that the Queen's speech would include this kind of a move to, to, uh, to end prosecutions for soldiers. Um, but there is a bit of a head of steam here. As I said, there appears to be a widespread briefing, a number of major newspapers uh, across the UK covering the story today, and an expectation that, that this time around the British government might be serious. So I think the, the Irish government will be very keen today to to apply as much pressure as it possibly can on the UK authorities not to go ahead with this move. And we'll be hearing from the SDAP leader Colm Eastwood in just a moment and from Green Party leader Eamon Ryan after eight. But two other issues, uh, Vincent, for you. Uh, Sinn Féin replacing its dairy team. Who are they going to put in with elections next year or even sooner if power sharing uh, doesn't survive the autumn? That's not clear yet at this stage. All, all we know is, Anya, they, they were very keen to remove the two incumbents, uh, Martina Anderson, the former MEP, uh, former junior minister, and Karen Mullen. Uh, they were viewed as, as deeply unpopular uh, in Derry. So the, the party leadership, um, they undertook a major review of the, the entire party structures after they had what was a, a disastrous Westminster election result in, in 2019. The, the, uh, the person you're going to have on shortly, Colm Eastwood, you know, won the seat back. For, for the SDLP with a majority of over 17,000, the largest majority ever in the foiled constituency. So Sinn Féin realised something was wrong. They, they, they brought in what was described as a team of number crunchers. They looked at all the numbers and all the voter patterns. The feedback they got was that if, they, if, if these two MLAs remained in place, there was a very strong possibility Sinn Féin could lose both those seats in the next Assembly election next May. And then, of course, the big picture here on you is that in that next election, Sinn Féin wants to become the largest political party in Northern Ireland for the first time. Uh, the oh, DUP right. only has one seat more than at this stage, so, so if it lost those two seats, it would make that dream impossible. But also, on you very importantly, that would have put pressure on Michelle O'Neill and raised questions about her leadership. And coming just a week after Arlene Foster uh, was forced to stand down from, from the DUP, it looks like Sinn Féin is taking action to sort of de- de- nip that in the bud uh, and to, okay. uh, try to remove any problems further down the line. Northern Editor Vincent Kearney, thank you. The Boris Johnson demolition of the so-called Labour Red Wall continues. The Conservative Party was widely tipped to take the former safe Labour seat of Hartlepool. Did they deliver in style? Well, Sean Whelan joins us shortly. But first, let's hear the announcement of the result. I do hereby declare that Gillian Wendy Mortimer, commonly known as Jill Mortimer, is duly elected. Congratulations, that's a majority of about 7,000 for Jill Mortimer. Here she is now making her victory speech. 
Thank you, um, Madam Returning Officer. Um, firstly, I want to thank the police and the council officers who have done an excellent job in ensuring that today's election and count went smoothly. Jill Mortimer there for the Conservative Party elected in Hartlepool. Sean Whelan, a bounce for Boris Johnson and quite the blow for Keir Starmer. That pretty much sums it up. Yeah, I mean, that uh, result was declared only a few minutes ago uh, because the uh, COVID restrictions meant all the counting slowed down uh, and the uh, election result that you'd normally expect around four or five in the morning uh, dropping, as I say, literally in the last couple of minutes, but not entirely unexpected. Uh, the Tories had targeted this seat for particular reasons uh, and they have uh, pulled it off though it is a rare feat uh, as uh, we mentioned in the audio it's only four times since 1950 that uh, a governing party has gained a seat from the opposition uh, during by-elections by-elections normally uh, tend to get won uh, by the opposition in the british system uh, so uh, you know, this is a quite an unusual event uh, for the conservative party uh, and there are quite a lot of particular factors in that seat so interpreting it out to the wider uh, state of British politics has to come uh, freighted with a lot of caution, I think. Nevertheless, it is a big win for Boris Johnson, Mm -hmm. and you can be absolutely sure uh, that the Conservative Party and their partisans in the Conservative leading press are going to be pumping this one for all it's worth and using it as a huge stick to batter uh, the Labour leader, uh, Keir Starmer, with. There will be lots of parsing and analysing of this result, as you say, Sean, but uh, will it be seen as part of that analysis uh, as a verdict on Boris Johnson's handling of particularly the vaccine rollout in in Britain? Uh, And will it be seen as well uh, when you look at at, at Labour uh, uh, and used by those who are uh, moving against Starmer as a, a, a... evidence of his failure to connect with voters or is this you know Hartlepool moving to the beat of its own drum Uh, I think it's elements of all three in there. Um, Certainly, uh, the vaccine rollout has been a a popular thing uh, in the UK. And why wouldn't it be? Uh, They have been ahead of everybody else uh, and they've done very well on that. It's one of the few absolutely clear bright spots that the government has had uh, in its uh, COVID handling, particularly during last year, things weren't going well for them. But nevertheless, um, a government that has been in power uh, in a country that has had a really, really high, one of the very highest uh, in in Europe, if not the highest death toll from uh, COVID, has nevertheless uh, won a a by-election in very difficult circumstances. And yes, you'd have to attribute a lot of that bounce to the vaccine politic. Also, given that it has been this very strange pandemic period, it's been very difficult for an opposition party to do the normal business of opposition, i.e. oppose the government, because how do you set about opposing public health measures, which have all been introduced uh, with the best intentions behind them? Um, It's just a a difficult thing to attack a government during a time of national emergency. They have been trying to attack Boris Johnson personally over the past couple of weeks over these allegations of sleaze around uh, who paid for the refurbishment of the Prime Minister's apartment in 10 Downing Street. But the polling has been showing over the past couple of weeks that hasn't really been cutting through to voters, particularly up in this uh, by-election constituency. Uh, 
where the particular factors uh, there seem to have come to the fore. And the one that I would point to has been Brexit. Mm -hmm. uh, this constituency has an unusually high affinity with the concept of Brexit. It voted by 69% to leave back in 2016, compared, of course, to the national uh, average of 52% leave. Uh, also, in the last general election, it had an unusually high uh, vote for the Brexit party. They got about 26% uh, of the vote there. Uh, the Tories got about 28, 29%, and the Labour Party got 36%, uh, sorry, 38%. So you can see that there was a big block of pro-Brexit votes waiting to go somewhere. And the Conservatives went into that constituency saying, we want those votes and we're going to get them because we're the party that delivered what you people here voted for, uh, which is Brexit. Boris Johnson delivered you Brexit. Uh, now it's payback time. You need to vote for him. And they've done a, a good job uh, in collecting those votes. Uh, just looking at the way the votes have broken down, uh, the Brexit party last time got just over 10,000 votes. Uh, this time, uh, a candidate for the Reform Party, which is son of Brexit Party, got just 368 votes. So you can see 10,000 votes uh, went uh, walkabout uh, between the 2019 election and this by-election, mm -hmm. and the vast bulk of those have uh, landed with the Conservative Party. And Sean, uh, looking northward where you are yourself in Scotland, and uh, lots of elections, of course, across the UK today, but none more interesting than Scotland. And if Boris Johnson has a smile on his face in Hartlepool, uh, that smile could be wiped from his face in Scotland if Nicola Sturgeon gets that majority and presses for, for a referendum on independence, couldn't it? Absolutely, it would. But Boris Johnson went campaigning in the Hartlepool uh, constituency three times during this campaign period. He didn't come to Scotland once. And that's because he's extremely unpopular here, extremely unpopular. Uh, even the, the vaccine rollout isn't gaining much credit for him up here. Uh, here, the issue is uh, the national question. Uh, the Conservatives are fighting their campaign entirely on stop Nicola Sturgeon, stop the SNP, stop uh, another independence referendum. They, th that is the only issue up uh, here in Scotland. And where Brexit has been a positive for the Conservatives, certainly in that uh, constituency uh, where they just won this by-election and will probably be the case in a few other parts of the north of England. And I'd look back to the European Parliament results uh, from May 2019 for guidance as to where, but certainly the northeast of England, definitely one of those places uh, where they would expect to pick up more votes in local council elections. It is having the exact opposite effect here in Scotland. They really don't like Brexit. Remember, uh, they voted 62% to remain in the European Union. So Brexit is now a wedge. It seems to be driving England and Scotland further apart. And I think the election results uh, coming out over the weekend uh, are going to show that. Uh, and Sean, 129 seats in play, I think, in Scotland. When do you expect to have a final result? We're not expecting a final result there until tomorrow evening at the earliest, um, frankly, because of COVID restrictions, uh, all the counting has slowed down. Uh, that that by-election result, as we say, uh, was slow in being delivered. Normally, they're extremely fast. Uh, in Scotland here, there's a proportional re representation system uh, has to be uh, is being used. And that, uh, of course, takes a bit longer to count as well. Uh, so they're going to start counting at nine o'clock this morning. Uh, we'll expect most of the constituency seats to be filled, hopefully, by this evening. Uh, 
up at the list party list, 56 seats there. They'll have to be counted uh, later, and that'll slow things down uh, a bit. So hopefully tomorrow evening okay. we'll get a result there. As we said, Nicola Sturgeon looking for 65 uh, that's the magic number for uh, a majority, um, an absolute majority for her. But there will be a nationalist majority in that next Scottish Parliament and they will be pushing for independence. This issue is not going away and that will be Boris Johnson's big headache. Sean Whelan in Edinburgh. Thank you. Now, where is your local vaccination centre and how do you plan on travelling there when you get the call? For some people in Limerick, that journey is proving to be a difficult one. Our reporter Joan O'Sullivan has been looking at this. Joan, what's the problem? Well, in Limerick, the vaccination centre for Limerick City and County is located on the outskirts of the city at the Radisson Blue Hotel. In fact, it's officially in County Clare. Now, there are no concerns about how the centre itself is functioning in terms of how it's delivering the vaccine. But worries are being expressed about the accessibility of the centre if you happen to be travelling by public transport. A local group in the city has highlighted that only one public service bus route from Limerick City brings you to the centre. It operates once an hour and it drops you off at a bus stop on the opposite side of the road from the centre. Now, the road in question happens to be a four-lane dual carriageway. This is Madeleine Lies of the Limerick Pedestrian Network and she explains how one of their members came across an elderly couple waiting at a bus stop near the centre at the weekend. They had to get to this vaccination centre, which is about seven and a half kilometres from the city centre. They are pensioners on small incomes and no car. They weren't able to walk at their age, but also there are no paths along that way. So no one can walk to the centre safely. They inquired about a taxi, um, but were quoted 17 euros each way and couldn't afford the round trip fare, which is pretty steep. So they decided that they would look into a bus, uh, which is what they ended up doing. The bus goes once an hour. um, And then when you arrive, you're dropped off on the wrong side of the dual carriageway. There's no pedestrian crossing. There's no way of slowing traffic. So these two elderly people had to make their way across the 100 kilometre per hour dual carriageway to cross the road. So this couple, Joan, they had to cross the four lane dual carriageway to go over to the hotel, the vaccination centre. And then when they were finished, they had to wait at the side of the road. It's the main Limerick Galway road for an hourly bus service to travel home. That's exactly it. Now, the Limerick Pedestrian Network publicised their story on social media and it got quite a strong reaction. It prompted a lot of questions and concerns. Here's Madeline again summing up some of the reaction that she received. We have groups of people who are really excited to try and get their vaccinations and we're making it much harder for them. And then we have large groups of people or groups of people who might be kind of on the fence about the whole thing and who certainly, you know, wouldn't go to the effort to take a half day off work to try and struggle out to the outskirts when they can't do it more easily, somewhere closer to them. I think a lot of people asking, why did this place get chosen? And how do you kind of figure out what a better option might be? So why was the centre put there, Joan? Because as we've been saying, it is quite a distance from the centre of the city. And are any efforts being made to uh, try and tackle the problems that have arisen? Well, I was speaking to Sinn Féin TD, Maurice Quinlevin, and he said that that's a question he's asked of both the government and the HSE recently. I spoke to him last night and he explained why he feels a second vaccination centre in the city centre would be the best solution. 
there's better locations, I believe, in the city centre of Limerick. There's a in the university. There's a, a centre that we use for an overfill in the first phase of COVID. There's also a HSE other facility that was used for walking testing. All of those would be accessible by either public transport or for walking for a lot of people. Whilst I don't want to say it closed the Radisson, the Radisson is fine, it's working really well, we do need a second centre where people will be accessible for. And if that's not the case, then the government have to intervene and provide some self-transfer for people who don't have their own you know, private cars or whatever. And I unfortunately had to deal with a number of people who came from my constituency clinic um, and there would be elderly people who didn't necessarily have relatives close by and who, who couldn't um, afford the taxi fare out there. I know one of the local community centres helped out for a number of cases. Sinn Féin TD, Morris Quinlevin. Joan, has there been any further reaction? Well, the UL Hospitals Group have governance over the site and they gave us a statement last night. In that statement, they said that locations for vaccination centres are chosen for a number of reasons. Now, that includes their overall flow area and flow management needed for the scale of the operation. Things like general external access and traffic management flow to the site itself and also the availability of public transport in so far as possible. Now, in the statement, they said, we are aware of concerns raised locally regarding public transport access to the site. As we prepare to significantly increase the number of vaccinations administered in the coming weeks, we are reviewing all aspects of the operation of the centre. Joan, many thanks for that. To the United States now, where President Joe Biden has thrown his support behind waiving intellectual property rights for COVID-19 vaccines. His support for a waiver, a sharp reversal of the previous US position, could potentially expand the global supply of vaccines and narrow the gap between rich and poor nations. The president has also laid out plans to vaccinate 70% of the US population by July the, 8th, July the 4th, though there are signs that the pace of vaccination is slowing. So Suzanne Lynch is the Irish Times Washington correspondent. She's been telling me more first about this potential waiver on COVID vaccine patents. Well, I think this is potentially extremely significant. Uh, This debate about whether um, to waive intellectual property protections for COVID vaccines has been uh, in the ether here now for months. Uh, You've had a lot of figures on the left in America. A number of Democratic members of Congress, up to 100, had just written a letter to President Biden asking him to consider this this waiver on the IP protection for patents, believing that this is necessary to to speed up the shots that are getting to to billions of people um, across the world. Um, So a lot of people did not not think this was going to come from the United States. There was a lot of debate within the White House about whether to go ahead with this or whether not to. In the end, the new US Trade Representative, Catherine Tai, uh, announced uh, yesterday that this would would happen, that the United States would, would support this. Now, they are going to now move to discussion phase at the WTO. Uh, Obviously, the US is only one of those countries at the WTO, but the fact that the US now backs it means that it is more likely uh, to happen. Could we characterise this as President Joe Biden siding with poorer countries and not with Big Pharma in his own country? 
Yes, I think we can. Um, uh, American pharmaceutical companies have a lot of power in this country um, and Joe Biden was under pressure from them, not just about, uh, you know, the obvious point about profit for pharmaceuticals, but also the argument from uh, that sector that uh, by waiving this protection on patents that would allow maybe some other competitors like China and Russia, uh, producers in those countries to uh, effectively copy, as they see it, uh, American IP. So it is a, a... it is a bit of a landmark decision by the Biden administration. Again, the pharmaceutical companies worry that this is per- perhaps a precedent. What happens when the next um, vaccine is needed? Will these companies, they say, be as keen to develop vaccines so quickly like they have th- this time if they feel that, as they see it, their intellectual property rights uh, will not be protected? Mm-hmm. But no, I think it is very important. It's again a significant move in how Joe Biden is uh, choosing to to govern. Um, he has obviously gone much more to the left in a lot of ways than many people had been expecting. Um, and I think this is probably at this stage another example of that. And yet, Suzanne, when I hear you say that it'll move on to discussion phase, it suggests that this isn't going to happen anytime soon. Well, that is true. Now, Catherine Tai said um, they would engage now with the WTO looking at uh, 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 t- the text of an agreement. So like all multilateral organisations, the WTO in Geneva um, is going to have to bring all these countries together on this. Um, this move had been backed by uh, countries like India, South Africa. Um, but, uh, you know, now it has to get agreement for, for all uh, members, if you like. So this could take a long time and B, uh, this proposal could get watered down, could get um, changed or developed um, as these negotiations uh, begin. So we will have to wait and see what the final outcome of this Mm. is. And meanwhile, on the home front, uh, President Biden has been forging ahead with the vaccine rollout with fairly ambitious targets, 70% vaccinated by Independence Day by the 4th of July. Uh, Will he achieve it? Um, well, I think what we're going to see from the White House is a real push now to try and keep up the levels of vaccinations that we've been seeing. What appears to be happening in the last few weeks is that the number of people getting vaccinated has plateaued. Now, in one sense, this was expected. Obviously, there was a rush of people who really wanted to get vaccinated, who, you know, who, who queued up and who got on the list uh, very quickly when this supply of vaccines came on stream about a month, uh, six weeks ago. Um, now what we're seeing is that the average rate, daily rate is, is decreasing. Now, um, the White House this week has effectively signalled a shift in strategy. Uh, it's talked about uh, making vaccines more accessible, bringing them to rural communities, for example, rather than running these huge mass vaccination sites we're seeing in a lot of cities here. They're talking about now moving more towards mobile pop-up clinics, or bringing them, allowing chemists and pharmacies to offer vaccines to people without appointments. So it's all about access at the moment. Of course, the other part of this is going to be trying to convince people who are hesitant to take the vaccine uh, to take it up. Um, I think one interesting trend here has been there was a lot of discussion about communities of colour and how traditionally some of these communities were hesitant uh, because of past experience um, from the government about taking vaccines In fact, the message seems to have got through in a lot of those um, more urban communities. What we're seeing now is 
that in some rural communities, um, white majority communities, which tend to have voted a lot for Donald Trump, um, that the take up is, mo- is quite low. Uh, so what we're probably going to see by the administration is an effort to get into those more rural communities and try and get more people vaccinated. Suzanne Lynch of the Irish Times. The French ambassador to Ireland has described the mandatory hotel quarantine system here as unfair and unnecessarily harsh. Vincent Guiron joins us now. Mr. Ambassador, good morning and you're welcome to the programme. Why do you say that? Uh, Good morning, Audrey, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, Indeed, I think it's uh, worth recalling that this uh, mandatory hotel quarantine is in place since 15th of April for France, as for Belgium, Luxembourg and Italy. And during these three weeks, we've been faced yet the embassy with a large number of desperate calls by the French community in Ireland, which is 25 to 30,000 uh, strong. And uh, I think the people who listen to this program have to understand that many of those uh, French people commute between uh, Ireland and France as people would commute between the north and the south of the island. That's one of the benefits of the EU. They go for France for medical reasons. They have left children, parents across the border. And we no, no longer speak as, uh, for, as, for, for normal travelling. It's not business as usual. People go for really compelling reasons, for severe medical treatment, for cancer, for, ha- for heart disease. And uh, we believe that the uh, mandatory hotel quarantine um, basically prevents almost all prevent almost all, all travelling, uh, and that the exception mechanism which has been put in place is uh, really insufficient. I think press reports showed that only 10% of the cases have been accepted. And so um, people also have to realise, I believe, that um, Ireland is the only member state in Europe to have imposed such a uh, restrictive uh, and, we believe, an extreme measure. So um, what we would ask here is really to, to, to uh, see whether this measure cannot be lifted in a matter of weeks rather uh, than a matter of months. And we really believe that there should be a, an exemption mechanism uh, which uh, allows for uh, more exception and which also be, would be prior to the uh, systems. Because currently you have to... Uh, register the uh, mandatory quarantine scheme, you have to go to the hotel before being able to appeal. And that is something which many people will not want to to take the risk of. Now, there is an exemption in place for people who have to travel for critical medical treatment. We've been talking to one French man. He wants to, he's living here. He wants to visit his home country to see his father who's dying, but he doesn't know if he will be granted an exemption from quarantine on compassionate grounds. Let's hear from him. He is Johan Pansede. My father is uh, dying from a cancer and uh, he's expected to pass away in the next few days. So I want to go back in France uh, at his funeral and uh, I am very concerned about the hotel quarantine. Uh, I think there should be an exemption for people in my situation. Uh, I am expected to bury my father and uh, then spend two weeks alone in a hotel room. I think it should be compassionate uh, to allow me to quarantine at home with my wife and my four children. Uh, I am also concerned that uh, you, you can't appeal uh, in the hotel quarantine uh, before arrival. It's, it's very stressful, uh, especially in this type of condition. And uh, it's, I, I really think it's uh, inhuman. Uh, my mother, my sisters are in France and uh, 
they are close to my father. They are with him, but uh, it's very stressful for them too because they ha- we have a lot of things, lot of things to manage, and uh, you can understand this one is not uh, something easy to to deal with. And I am alone on this one. That's Johan Ponsede there. And undoubtedly, Mr. Ambassador, there are very hard cases like that, people directly affected. But France closed its borders to non-EU countries in January. It, it has recently banned all flights to and from Brazil. Germany closed its borders to Austria and the Czech Republic earlier this year. Other EU countries did too. They're, they're making the decision to protect their people. Uh, true. <laughs> But the big difference uh, uh, is that France, for example, never closed any country with uh, any EU member states. From the beginning, we said very clearly that uh, the freedom of movement within the EU was uh, core and that we should uh, let people move as freely as possible within the EU, but indeed close the uh, border to the rest of the world. And uh, we have uh, uh, indeed imposed, uh, in certain cases, PCR testing uh, or uh, quarantine at home, but never uh, monetary hotel quarantine uh, in a hotel. I think no other member states have done so. And including the, some of the cases you mentioned of member states, I think uh, in, there were always, always um, exceptions for compelling cases as the one we just heard. Yes, but essential travel and exceptional cases don't give you immunity from the virus. And France's 14-day average is currently 652 per 100,000. In the two weeks up until May the 3rd, there were 360,000 cases. And there are some variants there as well. So doesn't the Irish government have a duty to protect the people living here? Yes, certainly. (laughs) We know that it's challenging for all governments. But um, there may be other ways through um, quarantine at home, through more testing, through checking that the quarantine at home is uh, duly respected, that are, I believe, uh, more respectful of, uh, indeed, some very specific and um, humanitarian cases. Well, the Irish government is meant to respond to the Commission, write to the Commission later today to, to give its reasons for why particular countries are on their mandatory hotel quarantine list. So we will await that. Thank you very much for talking to us this morning. That is the French ambassador to Ireland, Vincent Guirant. Last month, Ireland's Network Against Racism revealed that the highest number of racist incidents were recorded to it in 2019. For the past eight years, iReport has been compiling data for the organisation from information submitted by people who have been subjected to racism. In the first of three reports, our social affairs correspondent Alva Keneally explores the question of racism in Ireland and what needs to be done to tackle the problem. Today's conference was told how the ugly monster of racism has taken to our streets. What's needed here is is leadership. Uh, Leadership to ensure that uh, attitudes change and that people are welcome, not just tolerated. This report was broadcast by RTE in the year 2000, but it's a report that is just as relevant today. In the last 21 years, Irish society has changed as a result of immigration, and yet little has been done to tackle the problem of racism. Professor of Migration and Social Policy at UCD, Brian Fanning. Certainly, uh, I think Irish society is is pretty tolerant of immigration. Uh, That basically, if you look at the right-wing parties that are are trying to become established, uh, they they basically attract a very small group of people. 
uh, that most people, I think, would, 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 be, would like to see Ireland as an open and tolerant society. Uh, however well-meaning that is, though, our institutions uh, don't look like the wider diversity of our society, such as, say, the civil service, the teachers in our schools, perhaps even the media. Academia could be more representative, I think, of wider society also. So I think there is a sort of a, an onus in us then to see that those institutions begin to reflect the diversity of our society, just as they also need to reflect diversity around gender and other issues also. I mean, if our institutions don't look like who we are, they're not going to do a great job on our behalf, I think. That diversity is not evident where the biggest decisions are made, the Oireachtas. Politicians like Senator Eileen Flynn, who is a member of the Traveller community, understands the struggle in getting beyond the gates of Leinster House. Those gates have been shut for so, so long, these gates behind me, and they're opened a little bit now at present, and I'm hoping that they, that they will open up even wider for people from ethnic minority groups and for, and for people who genuinely have an interest in politics because like black people and traveller people are not just black people and not just travellers, if you know what I mean. We, we are also people that have an interest in the world, that wants to be doctors, nurses, wants to be solicitors and want to be politicians. And I, I was very lucky to get the opportunity that I got. Unfortunately, I missed out by a very narrow margin and I'm still grateful and I will always be grateful to uh, the Antishak Michal Martin for nominating me as one of his 11 but also I think it's very important that we acknowledge the work that that, uh, that I've done to get to where I am today and the work that women in general from ethnic minority groups and how it's tough for all women but we never really look at how tough it is for women from ethnic minority groups Representation is also important at a local level. Fianna Fáil's Arimu Adetami is a member of Longford County Council. We are moving into a new modern Ireland uh, where we'll have to you know, take stock of who is in the country, who are the people, who are we representing, what type of Ireland do we want to see tomorrow, what type of Ireland do we want to hand over to the next generation. There's a lot of, uh, of mixed race uh, children in Ireland, a lot of children from migrant background. So there's going to be a lot of interrelations. And, you know, if we want to see a better Ireland, a more ethical society, we need to start, you know, moving on swiftly from having the conversations to making sustainable changes that will see us into a better Ireland. Beyond their day jobs, these women face relentless levels of racism through social media. I try to raise above it, even though it's very hurtful, it is extremely hurtful, and I report it to ENAR, I report .ie, and I do report the discrimination, and I block people, you know, and I will be honest, I do block people, and I won't say what sometimes I write back to people, you know, when they are a little bit, uh, when they are racist to me, because I think I have every right to respond to them as, as Eileen Flynn, and not even as a public representative because they're attacking me for being Eileen you know it's called social media if you're being antisocial you shouldn't be on social media so there definitely have to be punitive measures for people that are anything but social thankfully I don't get too much and uh, fingers crossed <laughs> I won't but I, I try to maintain a, a positive profile online because it's so important if any there's any negative comments on my on my page or on my social media I just hide them because I don't want to see them I don't want my followers to see them and I don't want anybody to engage with that in the year 2000, the internet was in its infancy and people didn't have their own mobile devices, so this form of racism wasn't an issue. While the government's publication of hate crime legislation has been welcomed, Ireland's Human Rights and Equality Commissioner Sinead Gibney says it's not enough. 
There is legislation uh, progressing at the moment to deal with online hate speech, but I do think that Ireland also needs to consider uh, its role as a country which houses platforms um, here in Ireland. So many of the tech companies are based here in Ireland um, and, and what their, their role is. And I don't think we, um, we, we, we are dealing with that yet as a society and certainly I don't think government are dealing with it. I mean, if uh, internet platforms are... Um, profiting through the polarisation of views or the proliferation of, of, of uh, hate speech online, we, we have to look at that. Human Rights and Equality Commissioner Sinead Gibney ending that report from Alva Keneally. Yesterday, Manchester United's game against Liverpool was dramatically called off after protesters invaded the Old Trafford pitch and clashed with police. Two officers were injured. What began as a peaceful protest against the club owners, the Glazer family, rapidly descended into chaos. The fans' protest was sparked by the recently announced plans by some of Europe's richest clubs, including six in the UK, to form a breakaway European Super League. Plans rapidly fell apart and uh, fans' anger, though, has continued to grow. Martin's Ziegler is the chief soccer correspondent with the Times of London. Good morning, Martin. We we saw the, the pictures unfolding on our screens yesterday, but what happened? Yeah, good morning, uh, Mary. The, we uh, we knew there was going to be a, uh, a protest outside the match. So that, that had been well flagged up for, for days beforehand. Um, and there was expectations that there were going to be something around 10,000 supporters turning up outside Old Trafford. I mean, it's a big area there. So I think there was a feeling that they could cope with that. But um, the, the, it, things got out of hand. There was a large police presence. But there were clashes uh, between some of the supporters. I mean, some some of them were drinking, as we said. Um, I mean, if you read what the Manchester United Supporters Trust, it's even suggested that um, one of the staff opened the gates to allow them access to the pitch because there was such deep-seated sympathy with the with the uh, the unhappiness of these fans. Was the security eye off the ball yesterday? It would be strange if it was, given that everything was it was all very much known in advance. But on the other hand, when you when you do have them um, that sort of invasion of the, of the pitch leading to the match being cancelled, then surely questions have to be asked somewhere, or you know perhaps the, the I'm sure the police will be looking at whether their tactics were done correctly, uh, or and obviously the, the the club will be looking into how they managed to get access to the actual stadium. Mm. Um, there have been some reports of a, a low level of, of policing uh, around the event. W- would that be correct? Well, I mean, I think they tried to keep a sort of, uh, to initially tried to keep it as, as a low level, to not wanting to sort of inflame any situation. But I think things soon turned fairly sort of... Mm. Um, Ugly, and, I, and I'm sure reinforcements were called because we had mounted police there, and and, and officers in quite a, quite large numbers. Yeah, nobody in the football world has condoned the the violence that that ensued and the injuries to police officers. Uh, but talk to me about the anger among fans at the Glazer family and against the Super League. But but it's an anger against the Glazer family going back many years, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so the, the Glazers took over Manchester United about 16 years ago. Um, they used, the, it was a leveraged buyout, which means they, they, they didn't put any of their, or much of their own money in. They, they borrowed heavily 
to buy the buy the club with the idea that it would be funded by interest payments. So what we've had since every year since then is Manchester United always makes a profit or just about always makes a profit. And um, dividends are paid to the Glazer family and they pay off something like, in that 16 years, something like £1 billion has gone in interest payments. And the fans, uh, they've not had a, a, a league title to celebrate for nine years and they're... Um, you know, I think they they become used to winning just about every year under Alex Ferguson, and so I think this is just—it's all the resentment and has just boiled over. Do you expect this match to be rescheduled? They'll have to reschedule it. Um, you, I think there is, there are an opportunity because neither of them are—I mean, Manchester United are in the Europa League, Liverpool aren't in the Champions League, mm. so that does give a, a bit of flexibility that they could probably just squeeze them before the end of the season. But there's not much time. There is not much time left. Martin Ziegler of the Times, thank you very much. Now, the numbers returning to work are slowly growing. Over 385,000 people are receiving the pandemic unemployment payment. That's down 18,000 on last week and falling below 400,000 for the first time this year. But for those whose job no longer exists, it can be very difficult to find work. And the longer someone is unemployed, as we know, the more challenging it is. Women and young people in particular are affected. More of them lost their jobs and more women gave up their careers to mind their children during the lockdown. With that in mind, a course run in Cork called Growing Your Potential aims to give a confidence and skills boost to women who are considering going back to work. Jill Stedman reports. People would say to you all the time when you say you're a homemaker or oh, you don't work. So in addition to losing perspective on myself, I suppose I had felt unvalued and unproductive. Anne-Marie O'Gorman has stayed at home for the past 20 years as a homemaker. She is now over halfway through the 10-week Growing Your Potential course. I've moved from this, I'm an ordinary woman, nothing special, nothing grand. And now I've kind of gone on to, I'm actually who I'm meant to be. This is me. But before taking part, Anne-Marie had many concerns about returning to the paid working environment. I questioned, what could I do? Who would actually employ me? Uh, And actually, who am I? I actually realised this course was made for where I was at. This course was actually a little piece of magic that had come into my life. And I really do feel like that, that it sprinkled magic dust on me. And now I want to listen to Andrew Day singing Rise Up. And I I just feel so excited about life now and about the future. The course aims to give women a confidence and skills boost. It covers a number of areas, as Siobhan O'Neill, the course leader, explains. Personal development, uh, CV preparation and interview skills. Uh, We have three career coaching sessions. We do personal presentation for interview in the workplace, what you might or might not wear if you were going for an interview and, and, and working in the workplace. And also communication and customer care. The programme also helps women to identify the skills they already have. And some people say, I've only been in the home. And you're like, oh my God. See, like, first of all, rearing children is one of the most important jobs on the planet because you're rearing the next generation. So, like, that's huge. Gronya O'Driscoll is one of the trainers on the course. 
the skill set from managing homes and from managing budgets and managing um, timetables. And, you know, there's, there's, there's an unbelievable skill set that is there that is, that is hugely transferable within the work environment. You know, I'm a manager at home before I even go out the door. I'm first aider, you know. I mean, as a mother, you kind of do, you wear so many hats. And then when you sit down to talk to somebody, you think, yeah, of course I could do that. Arlene Pope finished the Growing Your Potential course at Christmas. She has since gone on to complete a special needs assistance course. This is about taking back a bit of your life for you. Like a friend of mine, when I told her I was doing the course and, you know, that I'd finished my SNA course. And I said, God, you know, am I too old, like, to be changing direction? And she said, let me just quote you now from this wonderful poet. She said, her name is Mary Oliver. And her quote was, now, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And I just thought, you know what? It is one wild and precious life. And... I deserve to do all the things that I want to do with it. So if I can gain that confidence from doing the course, I think every single woman should. Arlene Pope ending that report by Jill Steadman. And the course is free and applications are now open for the next round of an online programme. To Longford next, and a Garda investigation into a wedding celebration with more than 120 people at a marquee on the outskirts of Longford Town. Our Midlands correspondent, Kieran Malouli, has the story. Kieran, how did this unfold through yesterday? Anya, this actually began on Tuesday afternoon when Longford County Council and the Gardaí say they became aware of plans to stage this post-wedding party in a private marquee on land uh, not far from the town centre, actually. Now, uh, the Longford Gardaí say they got involved initially. They spoke to the family involved and they outlined to them the restrictions of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but they said there was no engagement. So at that point, Longford County Council chose to go to court. Uh, they went to Sligo Circuit Court yesterday morning to get an order which effectively gave them the authority to remove the marquee. The Longford County Council told the court uh, and the judge involved that the marquee was adjacent to a halting site in the town owned by the County Council, and they wanted to make, take measures to ensure this happened. But yesterday afternoon then, the situation unfolded whereby the wedding was taking place at St Mel's Cathedral in Longford Town, and uh, negotiations were going on between the Gardaí and the Council and the families involved. Now, I understand around lunchtime, uh, those uh, discussions broke up and uh, Lomfagardi say that they were there to support the local authority in the enforcement of the order, but that the local authority and its agents uh, withdrew from the situation. So throughout the afternoon, um, it would appear that the wedding plans went ahead. And last night, um, as we I think we saw on the nine o'clock news, the function itself went ahead in the marquee in Lomford Town. Where is the Garda investigation at now, Kieran? Well, Superintendent Jim Delaney is, in, in the, is the Longford superintendent in charge of this investigation. He says uh, that they will pursue every avenue open to them uh, today in terms of their investigation, the continuing investigation. That will include speaking to a number of people who were at the event last night, and he said their investigation will be thorough and that they will pursue it with a view to putting a file together with regard uh, to whether or not a breach of the COVID-19 uh, regulations has taken place. There has been a lot of reaction overnight, Anya, in the, in the area. Longford County Council chairperson is Councillor Paul Ross at the moment he said that the council had taken every measure to try and deal with the situation so last night he explained to me some of their frustrations at what had happened 
this came to our attention yesterday that there's going to be a mass gathering after a, a wedding uh, in Longford Town. Straight away the council acted on this and I believe we're one of the first local authorities in the country to get a court injunction to take down the, the marquee in which the event was going to be held. And so I, I believe the council work proactively on that to try and prevent this mass gathering. Obviously, we're in the, the midst of a pandemic. So it, it is very, very disappointing this evening to find out that there are people in the tent down there, that the court order has not been able to be carried out. Uh, we had the support of the Gardaí. As I said, the elected members of Longford County Council and myself were fully behind this. And it's very disappointing that it wasn't carried out this evening. The numbers in Longford have been high over the last couple of months. And like we have to remember, people have taken huge sacrifices over the last 12 months. Um, so for people in the community to, to, to blatantly disregard these rules, have a mass gathering in a town where there is a problem, it's just totally unacceptable. And listening to the chair of the county council there, Councillor Paul Ross, speaking to you, Kieran, uh, a lot of local upset. Yeah, I mean, th- this is not the first incident of this nature in recent months, uh, Anya. There was a, 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 s- a similar uh, type of event in, in County Leitrim, um, listeners may remember, about eight weeks ago. And uh, in the community itself, I suppose, where the restrictions are still in place, even though restrictions are coming to an end in many areas in terms of travel, etc. Uh, last night's event has caused considerable uh, anger among public, among the politicians and the public. On social media, there are images of the wedding ceremony itself uh, in, in, in operation at the moment and to be seen there. Though it has to be said that, you know, the initial number suggested that up to 200 people were at this function. Clearly from the video pictures on social media it looks like less than 100 people were at the, were at the event involved. Uh, but nevertheless, the fallout will continue today nevertheless. Alright, Kieran, thank you for reporting on that for us. That's our Midlands correspondent, Kieran Malouli. A wave of positivity and hope is sweeping through the country today as we edge closer to Monday when most public health measures will be relaxed, including inter-county travel being permitted once more. People can now plan ahead and they can look forward to the summer months, which is a stark, stark contrast to where we were only four months ago as we braced ourselves for a third and deadly wave of the coronavirus. Ailey Sheehy has been speaking to people about their plans for next week and beyond. Well, my mum told me first when I was going to go to go to Clare and see my cousins and my, all my family. I thought she was joking, but she didn't really have a joking look at her face. I was so happy. I miss them a lot, my granny and granddad. Whenever we are down there, they're like good entertainment. They're good fun. So we're going to go down to Clare on Thursday. I'm just really excited to see them. Ten-year-old Kira Bruggy Duffy hasn't seen her 16 cousins in Meelick, County Clare, for over 20 weeks. But that is about to change. Restrictions on inter-county travel will be lifted on Monday. And on Thursday, Kira and her parents will set off on their journey from Monaghan to Clare, a trip they have been longing to take for many months. Kira's mam, Bridget Amelia, can't wait to see her parents in person again. My mother is 73 and my father is 79, Noel and Bridget Brogy. My mother and father have a farm, so they have loads of different animals, geese and ducks and dogs and cats and kittens. And all the cousins have great fun going walking around the farm. So now that your parents have been fully vaccinated, do you plan on meeting them indoors when you go to Clare at the weekend? Yes, hopefully we'll be able to go up to them and go indoors because my mother's a great cook. She always cooks fabulous dinners. And my granddad, he's really good at making pancakes. They're great entertainers, great hosts. They're always feeding everyone, so it's brilliant. 
22-year-old Kaya Flynn from Castle, Maine in County Kerry is eager to hit the road and drive beyond her county boundary for the first time in a long time. I haven't left the county since last July. I also wanted to make the most of my insurance that I paid for, which was over a thousand last year. And obviously I couldn't get that far with it. So being able to get out and explore and see what Ireland has to offer would be a big plus for me. You have plans to visit Cork in the near future. Yes, my boyfriend has been living in Cork for the last couple of months because he started work placement in Skibbereen. And he's been telling me all that Skibbereen has to offer. And so we have planned a trip up there and just getting out for a hike. Who knows, we might even go into the museums and the art galleries now that we have the opportunity. My name is Sandra McDonnell and I live in a beautiful part of the country near Clorahead in County Louth. I'll be able to celebrate my first grandson's first birthday the following weekend. So we're able to go down to see him in Maynooth and I'll be able to get my hair done for it. So we can see our grandson with his other grandparents and I'll have a nice head of hair. A much-needed catch-up over a cup of tea in a friend's garden is another priority for Sandra. Somebody we knew unfortunately passed away over the last, about six weeks ago. And you can't go and comfort somebody just standing over a gateway. So it'll be lovely to go into them and sit with them or closer to them outside with a cup of tea and sort of give them your full attention instead of wondering whether or not you're doing anything for them over a a gateway. So it'll be a lot simpler and a lot easier and a lot more real being outside, sitting with them and conversing closer to them. Donna Moore from Enniscorthy, County Wexford, will make a very important trip to Dublin on Wednesday. It has been a year and four months since she last saw her best friend Fiona Cooney, who was travelling to the capital by bus from her home in Tipperary for a very special reunion. A lot has happened since they last met. I would have loved to be able to have seen her, to be able to tell her that I was pregnant. So. Having to tell her over the phone was not the way I would have planned it. So I was nervous kind of doing that because I wanted to be around her and give her a hug. And we had our little tears and stuff like that. Because it is a big thing for me as much as it is for her, I guess. Like, I mean, she was there for my wedding, which was a milestone in my life. And now I'm having a baby and to be able to share this experience with me now is going to be great. And Fiona, what's the real in-person experience going to be like very surreal I'm sure there'll definitely be tears and like that it's still going to be somewhat hard because you know I have to keep my distance I can't give her the big huge hug that I would love to because you know we still have to be very cautious but just to be able to look her in the eye it just feels like we've won some huge prize the fact that we get to do it I'm so excited and that's Fiona Cooney from Tipperary ending that report from Ailey Sheehy You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.